0: Hello, this is John Lenchner, and welcome to On Not Knowing, a series of conversations about embracing a growth mindset. Our guest this week is Claudio Pinanez, one of the founders of the IBM Brazil Lab. I've known Claudio since I started IBM Research in the year 2000 at the Hawthorne Lab, a then sibling to the lab we have in Yorktown Heights, New York. At the time, Claudio was working on a project called the Everywhere Display in which an automatically steerable projection device would project an interactive, context-aware touch screen as you moved around your office. Claudio's brand of creativity, which is part artist, part engineer, and part mathematician, left a lasting impression on me. His ability to push himself in these three wholly different ways has motivated some of my own career choices. So I thought it would be great to have him as a guest on the show. So Claudio, nice to have you here, and to have a chance to reconnect.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast.
0: Let's get started, can you tell us a bit about your life growing up in Brazil?
1: Well, I was in Brazil for most of my formative years. Uh, I did my bachelor here in, in the University of São Paulo, then, uh, then my master in computer science. I was part of a sort of unusual family. My my family, everyone works in movies. I'm the only one doing engineering, math, mathematician. Sort of the I'm the black sheep of my family. But I think that puts me in contact with art and with technology very early in my career, very early in my life. And that also informed my decision, my to also do theater. So I did a lot of theater during that time also, semi-professionally.
0: Oh, wow. So uh, actually, I know you had mathematical talents even before going to grad school. I know you went to grad school at the Media Lab at MIT, but uh, tell us a bit about your mathematical bent and how you pursued
1: that. I did um, pure math in, in my during my undergrad at the University of Sao Paulo and uh, and even for a mathematician I was a little, I was a little of a odd person because I was really interested in logic but I I think what mathematics gave me is a desire to have clean paths of reasoning and doesn't matter where you apply this but I think math gives you this ability of rejecting things that are not el- constructed in an ele- elegant way. And of course, what a mathematician thinks is elegant is probably something that's very fragile, but at the same time is so beautiful in this fragility that uh, that really uh, express a, a, a really clear way of thinking.
0: Hi, but you gravitated to art. You ultimately went to the MIT Media Lab. Is- Does art have this clear delineation between right and wrong and what is clear logically
1: and and otherwise? I I tend to see art and math as the extremes of an spectrum. And in some ways, those are extremes that touch each other, sort of in a ring. Because I think art also has this uh, passion for for elegance, for beauty in itself, and I think math has that more than computer science, more than engineering. It has this simplicity, and at the same time, both activities demand so much creativity to be done well. Yeah. Although it tends to attract very, very different kinds of people.
0: So, so you're, did you do all your graduate work at MIT, or did you do some in Brazil and some in the U.S.?
1: Uh, well, in fact, before I went to MIT, I spent two years in Japan doing research there, which in fact, I think what mm-hmm. put me in, in MIT was the research I did in Japan. But more important than that, I, I, I had to learn Japanese language. And that changed completely the way I see things, especially how people express themselves, how language can be constructed, how thinking can be constructed. I think it was an incredible experience. And during my MIT time, I spent two summers in Japan doing different kinds of work, which I think was they were also very productive because in both situations, I could explore more artistic aspects of my work than, in fact, I did at MIT.
0: I see. So what did you study in Japan and what led you to, to go there?
1: Uh, I went there because I was refused by all universities for a PhD. In eight, eight, nine, I applied. I couldn't get in any place except in Japan. Got this weird scholarship, six months learning Japanese only, Mm -hmm. which is the most tiring thing I ever done in my life to learn a language eight hours a day, five days a week. It's absolutely hard. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, quite a difficult language also, quite different from uh, Portuguese, yes, I yes. think.
1: I, I, I was never so tired in my life, and everyone around mm-hmm. me was like that. It was, it was quite amazing. And But there is the place where I start to do computer vision. And when mm-hmm. I was accepted at the Media Lab, I was accepted in a computer vision group uh, with uh, with Aaron Bobek. And uh, halfway there, I saw that I could apply what I was doing in computer vision, to, to theatrical performance. So I did one quite big performance uh, at MIT, m- more than half an hour, an actor and a computer-generated actor, all automatic, all based in computer vision. And that was a major piece of what, what I did there in terms of, of, of accomplishment, but it was, was this kind of work that's between two areas, so it's very hard for the computer vision guys to say, oh, this is awesome. And also for the artists to say, oh, this is awesome. But at the same time, everyone looks at, oh boy, can you actually do that? And that mm-hmm. was really surprising for most people that with the technology of that time, we could, do, we could do that.
0: So this theater, was it purely computerized or was there human actors or how, how did it work?
1: So imagine, Huge space, you have a stage there. We have two Mm -hmm. screens on stage. In both screens, we have projected images. We have an actor on stage. And the actor on stage is interacting with characters that are on those screens. And uh, it's all computer vision-based, so there's no words. It's all sort of mine. But it's not playing with a video. The actor was doing actions that were recognized by the computer system and would trigger uh, an appropriate reaction from the computer system and rendered in those screens or or even more we are playing sounds and controlling the lights of the environment but it was alive in that sense there are two actors following a script but modulating Mm -hmm. the intensity the timing according to what was happening between them it it was, was really uh, an interesting example of creating a, an interactive space, which is not completely open. And that was my, 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 thesis work was a lot about how you control m- narratives that computer and people work together in a soft way, in this interactive way.
0: Okay. Did, did you happen to overlap with uh, John Underkoffler, the um, minority report? Uh, fellow. Yes,
1: we entered the PhD program together and I believe we left together.
0: And uh yeah, because the work seems very connected.
1: Well at that point John was, was working a lot with uh uh interactive interfaces at, at, at the Media Lab. Uh, mm-hmm. in fact there was a lot of people working with interactive interface. I think my work was different, is was this focus on long narratives on not completely reactive system, but but systems that had a little more structure and And that's something I've been always interested in is how can we, we interact with a machine that understands us enough so we can work together in, 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 in a more complex way beyond the a Q and a do this, mm. we react that way, that kind of stuff.
0: Oh, that's very synergistic with uh, our contemporary vision of man-machine collaboration that's uh, sort of taken over in the last 10 years. I, I know that you, you must have started around the same time as me, even though you were physically in Hawthorne before I arrived. Um, so that was 2000. When did you uh,
1: start at IBM? Uh, 1999.
0: Okay, so just a year earlier. And did you start, It was, was the Everywhere Display your first project? No,
1: no. In fact, I, I had this wonderful project with uh, Claire Marie and John Carrat that was about uh, a website for art and culture. It was a, a project that IBM uh, decided to do with some of the top museums in the world. And they needed someone who understood uh, technology and art. So that's why they hired me.
0: Oh, and I remember there was a, a, a um, Russian or Soviet yeah, uh, museum. The Hermitage, the, Hermitage yeah, yeah, yeah. the
1: American Museum of Natural yeah. History and mm-hmm. uh, five other uh, big institutions. And interesting enough, what we discovered in that work is that people didn't want to interact too much with, uh, with artistic uh, uh, elements. They wanted to watch short videos.
0: Oh, interesting. So people in, in museums, they tend not to uh, want to know every detail about a painting. Is that the, the, the gist?
1: That's the gist. If they were on the website, they want to say, oh, here's a critic talking about something. Oh, here's a little curiosity. But short videos it was all about under three-minute videos.
0: And so, shortly thereafter, you, you transitioned to your own project, The Everywhere Display, which got a lot of attention, and especially my attention. So, tell, tell us about that. And I know you also worked with two extremely creative people, Mark Podlasak, P- P- our creative consultant for this particular show, and also Tony Levis, who's a quite accomplished guitarist.
1: Yes. And uh, so, this is a project that, in fact, when started uh, as an idea as soon as I get to IBM Research, Then I asked my manager, can I spend 20% of my time trying to make this idea concrete? And uh, can you buy me equipment? I said, okay, as long as the art and culture project is not affected. Uh, It was a skunk project in the beginning. But at that point in research, we had the the Adventurous uh, Research Program, which provided funding for two years. So we got that. And then we start we start playing with the idea of if uh, we can project an interface anywhere in the room, if we can create an interface on on the floor, on the walls, on objects, what can be done that's different? What imagine like uh, augmented reality without goggles? That's always how it's mm-hmm. got Like it's it's around you, and the fact that we had all this mounted on. a... On a movable head, it was was easy to to create this kind of interface. So we, we embarked in five years of exploring these different kinds of, of 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 spaces where people could interact everywhere.
0: One thing I loved about that, I remember you showing me uh, this use case where you. You're gazing at the phone, and a, a, at that time we called it a Rolodex, but basically your contact list mm-hmm. showed up in a virtual screen, and that you could interact yeah. with, and that seems a yeah. wonderful little thing.
1: Well, we had tic tac toe in, in the, with this machine in the Epcot Center, mm-hmm. and uh, the idea is that not only only you have to play first, you have to find the board wherever it went. Okay, you'd play a do a move. And the next player had first to find in this space the, the board, which sometimes was a little you know, hidden corner and then and then, and then interact with. And it, it, it has it had thousands of people going through it. That was really wonderful.
0: Yeah, nice. And I think it's, it's a great example of how you meld your passions and, and creative gifts, your you know, gift for art, mathematics and engineering.
1: And at the same time, it's, it's a great example. Of a technology that is a little ahead of its time, I think we mm-hmm. we could do it. Well, at that point, there was no way to make it, to do it in a economically feasible way. And uh, I think uh, that's one of the difficulties of this kind of work. You never know when it's uh, too early or too late for the market. Yeah,
0: have you sort of coming back to it now? It seems like the time might be ripe.
1: Look at the projectors now. I mean, you can do things now with projectors. That, that absolutely mm-hmm. you couldn't do at that time. I mean, they are brighter. Right. And, uh, we, are, we are going to have a, a comeback on that, I think.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay, so from there, you... I'm not sure it was exactly from there, but you ultimately worked in services research under Mahmoud Naikshina, who we just uh, spoke with uh, in our last interview. So how did that go? And tell us about that transition.
1: Around 2005, uh, IBM Research decided it, it had to support uh, the service business of IBM, which was already a major part of our business. And, uh, and, and I joined that effort. My main contribution to this effort was really uh, the design part and pushing the design part in different venues inside IBM and outside. In service design was quite a new concept at that point. And uh, I, I, part of what I did was to to publicize it, to to talk to people about things like uh, service blueprints and uh, many techniques. But I didn't say, well, now you move to talk about service. You're doing interactive research. For me, service is just a situation where you interact with a system which normally is a, is a computer plus people. I was, mm-hmm. Before that, I was doing interacting with a, purely a computer system. Now I have a system that's even more complex. There are people, there is computers, machines, systems. And, and in many ways, I thought that was an extension. But I, I focused mostly on the design side of it because I think it was closer to my interest to what I was doing related to interaction.
0: The human side you're quite interested in. I mean, that, that that work has had quite a legacy. It's led to cloud, hybrid cloud, DevOps. It's really led to this generation of how we interact with systems.
1: For me, there's also another part of it, which was suddenly I was going to conference of uh, business people, business researchers, people from business schools, which was a mm-hmm. completely different crowd from what I was used to be to to work with the computer scientist. Yeah. I was going a lot at a point to HCI conference, yeah. human and computer Face, to computer graphics, which is the more creative crowd of of computer science. But the the, the, the business research conferences were a completely different game, a completely different rituals and. Uh, uh, they have different values. I mean, the beginning was hard.
0: So I know that, uh, I don't know the timing exactly, but you ultimately went and re- started up the Brazil lab. So tell sort that out for me, the timeline and how all that that, that transitioned.
1: So in 2008, for personal reasons, I wanted to move back to Brazil. Mm-hmm. And uh, And in fact, I tried to find a job in IBM Brazil, couldn't find one. So I, in fact, I applied to university, entered, a, uh, got a position in the University of São Paulo, and uh, I, was a, I was moving out of IBM research when my I ran out of scotch tape, and then I knocked the door of a, a colleague, looking for the uh, scotch tape to, to close boxes I had. Right, it was my three days before I was going to leave IBM, <laughs> and I said, and he, and I talked, I was going to Brazil, He said, Oh. Do you know that we are that IBM Research is interested in maybe opening a lab in Brazil? I said no, and he said, "Oh, come to this uh, meeting in two hours." I went there. At the end of the meeting, it was proposed that a IBM Research should send me to Brazil to explore this new lab, and that kept me inside IBM Research. So I sent to Brazil with a mission of explore the opportunity of creating a new lab. You were the one who started this exploration? This exploration. And in Brazil, there was a scientist, but he was involved in the business there called Fabio Gandor. So we worked Mm -hmm. together two years. We built the business case. We talked to everyone inside IBM. I mean, companies, government, we, we, we sort of created this context where an IBM research lab would make sense. And the the perfect was timing because by around the end of 2009, John Kelly wanted IBM Research to expand. And so we we went through this process of selecting a new lab. We won the lab with the help of some other people. And in July of 2010, we were opening a new lab in Brazil which was the first in, I believe, more than 10 years. So did you
0: also supervise the the building of the lab? Or was it an existing structure? Or how did, how did that
1: uh, Well, Well, one of the interesting things that IBM Research did was they asked Dan Diaz, who had been a key person in, in creating the, the, the India lab, they asked him to become the director of the IBM lab in Brazil. And... He came and he said, "A lab is not buildings. A lab is people." So we first hire, and then we decided where we are going to put them. So we started immediately hiring. We had the support of IBM Brazil. We had some terrible space in IBM, Brazil at that point. Okay, We mm-hmm. started in a, a meeting room with eight people, no windows. everyone had in conference calls at the same time including including them. And uh and then we, we start to find a space and and soon we realized in Brazil if you want talent you have to get people from Sao Paulo and Rio, which are two major cities about four hundred kilometers apart. So we decided we are going to have two campuses of this lab, one in Rio and Sao Paulo because uh, PhD students from Rio don't go to Sao Paulo, PhD students from Sao Paulo don't go to Rio. So I say, okay, if they okay, if they don't want to move, we create two, two spaces and uh, we started, as I said, from scratch. Dan was absolutely incredible in, because he knew what he had to, to build in the sense because mm-hmm. he was in a lab that, that 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 was that went through some of that process and uh in 10 years we reached uh, 150 people 150
0: wow. that's what you have now we have a, a little
1: less because of we, some of those are interns we have 80 phd's and uh and software engineers and we have uh, a lot of students because of the way the brazilian law is and mm-hmm. uh but we have really really good people i think if, there is, if I had to say one thing we did right in these 10 years was hiring. I think we we tapped in this talent that there is in Brazil, which was, in fact, one of the major selling points of having a lab here. And I think we have incredible people.
0: Oh, nice. Yeah, in fact, my experience of uh, the Brazilian researchers has been, yeah, very impressive. Okay, so let me now uh, transition to uh, the growth mindset Uh, question of the day. One of the central tenets of the growth mindset philosophy is that talent is not something fixed and rigid, but something that can be developed. Coming from Brazil and then going to MIT for your doctoral training, there must have been many people proclaiming your wonderful talents and how they must be God-given. Hearing that and knowing how we all want to feel and be special, it's hard to also hold in your mind that actually talent is something that can be developed that maybe much of your own talent actually came from hard work and discipline, and that it wasn't all some sort of lucky star that you were born under. So tell us about how you've wrestled with this issue of innate talent versus the realization that your own talent can be developed.
1: Well, that, that, that question reminds me of an observation that once I heard from Sam Petlin from MIT, saying there are three types of students in, at, at MIT you know, think about an inverted triangle, okay? So they say, oh, these are guys who are, have a really big mind, but they cannot sit for too long to work. And uh, think about the top part as being the mind, the the bottom part as being the butt, okay? And then there's the, the triangle, which people, eh, they're not too brilliant, but they can do really hard work. And then he said, well, oh, we are after squares. Okay, people mm-hmm. who have a great mind and have a have an ability to do hard work. But when I look at this, in fact, is saying, look, each of us is a trapezoid. And it is more complicated than that in the sense that there's not only one dimension for intelligence. There are multiple dimensions. Okay? So think about this multidimensional trapezoid. And and understanding that is fundamental. Okay. I, as I said, I was doing theater before, I was doing a lot of other stuff. So for me that I was not the best in the world, it was easy to see because there are some things that are as good like math, or things that are not so good as theater or photography that I did for a while. When you're moving in in a more interdisciplinary structure, you, easily find that there are things that other oh, people are fairly better than you are, okay? That you can put work, but it will be very hard to get there, okay? Uh, another example, I mean, you talked about Mark Podlasek. Well, I think I could do interface. Then I saw Mark Podlasek design an interface. And I said, okay, he can do. So for me, the way to work with this issue of of different abilities is that you put teams together so you have a big top and a big bottom but you are you have a score not because an individual is square but you because you put a lot of people with different abilities and capacity of hard work and for me that's the the secret of, of, of having good teams
0: well, so I think there's something to be said for the quirky individuals. You're kind of quirky. I hope you don't take this as a um, slap in the face. <laughs> it's quite the opposite, actually, in my own mind. But you have this very unique combination of, you know, talents and experience that make you uniquely you. You know, you obviously have some weaknesses like we all have, but your experience are so unusual that you will bring something novel to the table in almost any team. And I think that's really the case for almost all of us. Uh, Maybe less so than (laughs) in your case, but uh, we are all kind of a quirky bundle of interesting stuff.
1: Yeah, man, come on, take people in IBM research. We are all points that are off of the curve in in many ways. In all, in in that sense, and and that's good. Uh, I I love that. In fact what i think we just have to be careful is uh when we talk about talent and about hard uh, hard work and uh, i think we we should be careful when we talk about this in terms of children and 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 sort of grown-ups adults because i think children we have to be very careful of not putting barriers in terms of saying oh you're not good at this when the Children, the child maybe never actually tried to do that, or have never actually someone who who pushed him or her in the right way. So Mm -hmm. uh, I I like the idea of growth mindset in children as a way to avoid trapping them in, in inside boxes that. They don't know if they fit or not.
0: You have a bit of growth mindset skepticism, and uh, you don't think it, I I think that you don't think it applies so well to adults, but, you know, so why is that? I
1: think for, for adults, the real important thing is that we balance this understanding of what we know we can do well, what we want to do and what are things that would take us too much energy to do well, mm-hmm. okay? And, uh, and I think learning yourself in understanding these limitations and, and managing your career to say, well, I, I could go there if I really wanted, but my God, it's mm-hmm. going to be hard, okay? Mm-hmm. And maybe I can do the same energy, put the same energy into other stuff and, and have more, uh, not only success, but pleasure, in a sense.
0: By the time you're an adult, you should know yourself well enough that mastering every single subject would be a just an enormous amount of work. You probably should leverage the fact that you know your strengths and weaknesses well enough so that you uh, maximize your impact.
1: Well, it's um, hard to do that. Yeah. I'm not saying it's easy. Yeah. Okay, let me give an example. I mean, some time ago, I started to get involved with management. I mean, became a first-line manager and I think, okay, oh, do I want to be a lab director? And Mm -hmm. I realized to be a good lab director, you need to do internal politics really well. Okay, in a good way, in a good sense. I'm not saying politics in the bad sense. You need to talk to people. You need to make uh, alliances. And I said, oh my God, I'm not so good at that. I hate doing that. So why do I want to be a lab director? Mm -hmm. I'd rather be a good scientist. I I think also I'm a a good first-line manager in the sense that I like working with researchers, make them improve, uh, help them with their careers, lead them in projects. But I said, why do I want to take the management path? That would be really hard work for me, not so pleasant, and probably people who have those skills more naturally, they'll be ahead of me in this. And it's competitive, we cannot avoid that. Mm -hmm. So, but it's hard and it's hard to evaluate yourself and to be clear and having mentors also helped for you to see this. I I think it's it's very important to, to talk to other people to understand, realize your limitations and where you can find your best place. I'm not against uh, having an open mind about trying new things.
0: Yeah, well, you certainly have done that a million times. If anyone has tried <laughs> new
1: things, it's you. Well, I'm very intolerant, and maybe this is a problem, to mm-hmm. getting stuck in in science. Uh-huh. Uh, that's not a, the best way to do your career in science, I have to, to say. It's maybe an interesting mm-hmm. way, but not the best in the sense that uh, a lot of the Career progressions in science involve in doing similar stuff, or at least in the same area for a long time, and mm-hmm. uh, and I think it is a, a something that is a a problem for science and and, and uh, for in academics in general is that they're still very uh, those careers are still very sort of silo oriented, so it's very hard, for instance, especially if you're in a university, to to be multidisciplinary. Because mm-hmm. uh, there are no easy ways for one department to say, "Oh, you are good in that other department too," so this is a good reason to keep you here. That's not—it's <laughs> not, it's not how it works. Uh-huh. And,
0: uh, Matt, you somehow managed to be a one-person interdisciplinary department within IBM. <laughs> I think for the few select talented people like you, uh, we afford that better than academia does. So, so let me. Uh, uh, wrap up with one last question so what's going to be uh, the next chapter for Claudio
1: any ideas well I've been working on conversational intelligence for a while I think I'm starting to get a very interesting speech in speech-based conversation so I'm going mm-hmm. all the way from vision speech I, I've been working with text but I think the Doing uh, research around conversational speech and about co- computers that can actually give this feeling that they're actually talking to you is mm-hmm. it, it, a very interesting area. I think there's so much stuff to be done there, especially from the interaction side, and uh, it's probably where I'm going to, to be working in the next years.
0: So do you think the, the interface, the Alexa-like interface, is going to um, have an impact well beyond what it has today, perhaps even in business?
1: Let's put this way. I think Alexa is the, the BlackBerry compared to what we need. We have to make an iPhone. Alexa is the BlackBerry. Mm-hmm. That, uh-huh. uh, that's the level. I think it can be so much better than it is right now, in my view
0: it's been great chatting with you Claudio and great to follow your career through the
1: years oh this is my pleasure it's always great to talk to you John you also have some interesting twists in your career
0: (laughs) yeah yeah I take after you (laughs) so that wraps up this episode of On Not Knowing on behalf of our producer Andy Aaron and myself thanks for listening